Welcome back, everyone, to the Frosty Connects podcast. I'm your host, Jason, along with Frosty. Man, I can't read anything on the internet. I got fucking old lady eyes. Why is that? Just that gif you sent me earlier. I just, I can't. So, for context, Capcom's got a sale on all their games on Steam right now. So, I sent Jason a link to Monster Hunter World Iceborne Master Edition, which is the base game and Iceborne. And I was like, boy, you need to buy this. And he replied with a JoJo gif. Its text is so small, I cannot read it at all. That's not even JoJo. That's My Hero Academia. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it's, it's All Might. The guy has very chiseled features and there's a lot of oh, whatever. I'm, that is All Might. I'm apparently blind. Happy National Anime Day, everyone. <laughs> I thought it was national... It's multiple national days today. Yeah, what was the one you posted about on Twitter? National, like, takeout it's day or something? national takeout, yeah. Yeah. It's national takeout day during coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, national takeout day is every day when, when COVID's going around. <laughs> exactly. There's no difference. Yeah. I mean, we're in lockdown again. Third time. Woo. Oh, yeah. It's so for people who don't know where we're at, we're in our third wave. They finally shut things down instead of just saying we don't care enough about you guys to shut things down again. <laughs> and yeah, we're like big lockdown again. So that's these are the weather's nice outside. Yeah, but now it's stay home orders, too. So now you can't even leave. The way they worded that was, like, really ambiguous, and I've... I know. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been outside, and I haven't been, like, arrested, and there's been police who have driven by me, so I'm like, okay, clearly there's nothing saying I'm not allowed to be outside right now. I'm just, like, going for, an ex- well, like, a walk with a mask on just to get some exercise. Well, it's like if you say, like, I'm going to do pickup and I don't have, like, a car, then they'll be like, okay, on your way, sir. Yeah. Uh, I need to go get groceries, but I don't want to take the bus because for obvious that's reasons. a haven. Yeah, exactly. It's in a closed space with no open windows. When I got, was able to work from home, I was just like, wife, you're taking the car. <laughs> no bus for you. Yeah, and whenever Miranda and I do stuff, it's the same way. It's she, We used to take the bus quite a bit. Even though she has a car, we used to take the bus quite a bit because it's just... Convenient. Yeah, well, I wouldn't even say it's convenient. It's just that in a lot of cases, it's like, okay, well, what we're doing is on a bus route anyway, so we can just take the bus instead of having to take the car. And then, like, paying for gas is, like, kind of expensive, so it's just, it's usually just, sometimes it's just easier to take the bus. Plus, if we take the bus, then, like, you know, both of us can drink alcohol, whatever, wherever we're going. The bus is our designated driver, right? But, yeah, so there's a few times where we take the bus for stuff, or she'd even take the bus for, to work because, you know, like, downtown parking costs a lot. And, yeah, we have not taken the bus since COVID happened. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what else to say on that. Yeah, I don't think there is anything else to say. Let's get into the topics for discussion that we have lined up this week, though. Yeah, do you remember the what you mentioned on last episode for April Fool's, Outriders? Yeah, let's start there. <laughs> uh, yeah, did someone tell the developer that April Fool's is over? Yeah, no shit, eh? So, for those people who are not familiar, um, I guess we can talk about what Outriders kind of is. It's a new lootery, shootery type game that developers have definitely tried to distance their marketing and... Shortcomings. Yeah, exactly. Because it has a lot of shortcomings compared to the genre titans. Uh, This week, an article was published, and I'll let you tell everyone what the article was published about, Jason. (laughs) Yes. So, they put out a patch... I guess for some updates and stuff. Unfortunately, if you logged in, there was a possibility your inventory would just be kaputs, gone. You'd log in and you'd just be a bare bones character. Yeah, you'd be a character. naked ass, like level one looking character. <laughs> 
And this is for people who played for 20 hours, 80 hours, 100 hours. Yeah, can you imagine... Can you imagine no. fucking playing? <laughs> you just know. No, you're going to entertain. They're not going to let me finish what I was going to say. Can you imagine, though, fucking playing a game primarily about collecting new gear for Boot your character? And it just goes, yeah. yeah, and it just fucking disappears one day when you log in. It's so frustrating. I'm frustrated by it, and I don't even play the game. Yeah, it's just... I don't know if they have any tools to like provide the players with their stuff again. I don't I, think, I think they do. I'm pretty sure they were fucked. Yeah, I think you're correct there. I'm pretty sure they are 100% fucked. They have lost all the progress that they were making. I'd be salty after five or ten hours and being like, oh shit, that save got wiped or something like that. And Yeah. Like if I was playing an RPG or just forgot to save, like I'd be salty and I'd just be like, I'm not playing this over again. <laughs> I can't imagine 80 hours. Yeah, well, it's, it's just what you mentioned there. It's like in the age before, like, auto-saving was standard in every single game, right? If I forgot to save... Thank you, video game gods. Yeah, Thank exactly. You. If I forgot to save, there's some older games I play where if you didn't save and you got a game over, it would just send you back to the last time you saved. You could play for, like, three hours. If you forgot to save, you just lost three hours of progress. That was enough when I was, like, in my preteen and teenage years to just fucking rage quit the game. I just, like, put it inside of its case and just would not play it for several months. <laughs> I maybe return to it at a future point, but, like, that was yeah, enough for me to just stop I playing. Why forget about this? Exactly. And then you play it again, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to remember to save. That's the reason why I stopped playing last time. <laughs> Hypothetically. So for us in Canada, a AAA game costs $80 Canadian instead of $60 American. 90 with tax, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, after tax, it's like $93 here. So hypothetically, Jason, you bought this game for $93 Canadian. So you played it for like a week, right? So you've played it for, you know, about like 30, 40 hours. You log in, your character's naked. What do you do? Ask for a refund. (laughs) (laughs) And I would also probably not play the game. I would report the bug and be like, how are you compensating me for my time, developer? And they'd say, fuck you, not at all. I'd write a very angry article. I would publish it out and I would... You have a blog, frostylight.ca. Yes, exactly. Frostylight.ca. Casual shill. But yeah, I'd write a fucking blog post about how angry I was and how stupid and shitty this is. And then I'd uninstall the game and never play it again. Probably never buy anything from that developer ever again. Oh no, whatever will you do without Square Enix games? Well, they're the publisher. It would be from people who fly... Okay. Square's the publisher. I'm not going to... I buy a lot of their published yeah. games. They're one of my, the publishers that actually appears quite frequently in my, my library, but I just don't I don't tend to buy, like... Were you one of the ones who bought Balan Wonderworld? God, no. I played the demo and saw that that game was dog shit, so I had no reason to... It's a full-price game. I cannot... Oh, my good lord. You can't even? I cannot even. That shit boggles my mind, honestly. But yeah, so this is pretty shitty. I... I don't even know what to say, man. Like <laughs> They have apparently patched it out after two patches to address the issue. So you can now log in. You probably won't lose your shit. But enough people were losing it, so it wasn't like a one-off. Yeah, that's a colossal fuck-up, honestly. That's like a, Maz would say, it's like a bungee-level fuck-up, right? Like, because I think that might be bigger than a bungee-level fuck-up. Because I don't think Destiny has ever had a problem where they fucking went and deleted people's inventories. So I was curious about how this game is averaging, like, uh, player-wise. I think it's doing okay, but what did you find? 
It's doing a lot better than I thought it was. Okay. So to give some context, I tried looking up anthems, then forgot it was on Origins, so there's no Steam chart for that. That is true. So I can't compare that, but I was able to bring up Marvel's Avengers. So the all-time peak was 28,145 players. Okay. Outriders is sitting at an all-time peak of 125,000 players. Yeah, just got an estimated 500,000 to a million players total based on Steam Spy's numbers. And then um, Destiny 2 is sitting at 292,000. Uh, their all-time peak that kind of gives the context of it's not doing that bad i've seen a ton of people mm-hmm. i know some people like in the blogging sphere and some friends who are actually playing this game it's very much not like some of the other games that have come out where you know like we were making fun of anthem on some of our earlier episodes <laughs> or uh, avengers like so i wouldn't necessarily we were definitely making fun of avengers i don't know if we we're making fun of anthem but well i mean avengers is sitting at like 600 active players at the moment so yeah that we can make fun of them that game i don't think is coming back from the brink of, of di- why no i don't think it's coming back you see the thing is that a lot of these games that have really terrible launches do eventually turn things around it's just in a lot of cases it's not covered as a kind of a major story but the popular examples are like Final Fantasy XIV and No Man's Sky. But mm-hmm. Rainbow Six Siege turned things around. Division Two really turned things around. Destiny, actually, both Destinies had really pretty rocky launches. Well, both Divisions had rocky launches and both... Um, I feel like two turned things around a lot better than one, though. I don't remember hearing as much positive press about the first Division, but the second... Like Division 2, I feel like I heard a lot of really positive stuff about it a couple months after launch when they fixed up a lot of the major issues. Well, it helped that they did from some free DLC. From what I had heard, the Mm -hmm. extra modes in the Division 1 were a lot of fun. Yeah, that too. There's a lot of games that have managed to turn things around. It's not even like it's inconceivable or like it was even a shitty idea for EA to try and turn Anthem around or Grey Enix to turn Avengers around. But I mean, they're still trying. Yeah, I just I don't know if either of those will actually pan out in a meaningful way. So, you know. Well, Anthem's dead. Yeah, so. I guess that's true. They did took Anthem off life support. Yeah, now it's just hanging in the cosmos. Disney probably doesn't want to give up on that potential revenue stream, but I don't know if it'll actually be able to turn around. They had like every opportunity to make that game successful and completely shit the bed with it. So, I don't know if there's any way to turn that around. I mean, it's on next-gen systems, so it's going to have a little bit of room to be like, I'm one of the kings and on the PS5. There's not much to play at the moment. Can't you play most of There's your... all the backwards compatible. Yeah. I was going to say, can't you just play most of your old library so instead of playing like a bad old game, you could just play a good old game? Yeah. Which wasn't necessarily true at the beginning of the previous gen yeah where they had like everything was net new so if you were a new game that released on those systems in the first year you were like you were like an oasis in a desert of depression (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think a a not insignificant amount of titanfalls limited success on the xbox was due to the fact that it was one of the only big shooters available at the beginning of the xbox one's life yeah i mean that one was cross-gen with um oh yeah it was on the 360 wasn't it 360 as well but it was superior much superior on the uh, the one. Yeah, and it was also released on PC, but PC is a very interesting market when it comes to online shooters, which is to say that because like basically every shooter from the last 20 years runs on a Windows operating system, there are games that are very, very old that are still being played competitively. For example, Counter-Strike Source, or no, not Source, never mind, that's wrong. Global Offensive, CSGO. Mm-hmm. That's... 
it's on the Steam most played list like every day. It's a game from 2012, and it is consistently the most played game on Steam every single... Well, okay, that's not necessarily true. It's usually... It swaps back and forth in the first and second spot with Dota 2. Whichever one is on top usually depends on what the flavor of the month is and slash or which one of those games is currently having their majors played. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't really keep up on that stuff, but yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And there's like other games that do really, really well on PC that are not necessarily conventional shooters. So you can actually find a, an audience for a lot of weird shooters on PC. Not necessarily the biggest audience, but the fact that CSGO is just like an old ass game and people still love and play it. And it's like no, like a new game comes out. It's like, ah, oh, well, we, but we have csgo already you know i know yeah i know dota 2 and csgo they're both from valve right yeah so the top two spots on steam are occupied by two games that are actually developed and published by steam or sorry by valve steam is on the platform yeah, yeah. <laughs> steam is the platform valve is the company well segue epic games is still trying to take down valve but they're kind of failing quite miserably so I think that matters based on your perception, but yes, generally speaking, I would say they're not being super successful. So the headline for the article that Jason is referencing here is that it's been three years since Epic Games has started to operate a store in the PC marketplace, and they have a net loss of $450 million across that three years. I mean, I know they're making a lot off of Fortnite, but I just find it really funny. If you read the article from that headline belongs to, it's it's a VG Charts article. The specific breakdown, it shows like how much of that $450 million was spent in 2018, 2019, and 2020. And what that was spent on is buying the exclusivity rights for a number <laughs> of games that... So basically, it's, it's how they've been trying to buy their marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. Or their place in the market. That's when they bought like Metro Exodus to be exclusive on their platform for the year until it came to Steam. Yeah. And then you played it, and then you hated it, but that's fine. Well, so, yeah, <laughs> they had, they've had they had a ton of games that have gone through them that way, and that's how they've been funding, yep. like, and, it, you know, this is the reason why a lot of indie developers are taking these deals is because, you know, Epic's giving them enough money to potentially support their studio for over six months, and they're able to pay everyone, which is fucking insane. Like, that, that kind of money does not just appear out of nowhere, right? Yeah, no, I understand, like, why they... Uh, these developers definitely take the opportunity to mm-hmm. actually make their game what they want it to be. Yeah. I feel it, it sucks because it's like, yeah, okay, it's limited to one platform. Only for but... a, a little bit. Because the thing with the exclusivity deal is that it's only, that all the contracts are written exactly the same. It's just like one year on Epic. And then one year after the game launches on Epic, like the next day, a year later on Steam, <laughs> it's on Steam. Yeah, they're primed and ready. Yeah, because it's like you don't limit the number of stores that your game can be bought on, really, once it's been out for a little bit. So the reason that this even came up was it came up in some regard with the some of the court case thing that, like, with the whole thing where Epic and Apple are in a slap fight right now. I think you're right. So, obviously, they've been buying up, or they've been using, the, like, the, the fuck you money that comes from Fortnite to pay for this. <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it is what it is. Yep. But I think the idea, yeah, it's just at the bottom of the thing. It's like they expect to become profitable. So like the amount of money they're spending in the store to get exclusivity contracts for a year versus the amount of money that's coming into the store from purchases, they're expecting that by the end of 2023, they're going to be profitable. So for those who are not familiar, that means they expect that the amount of money they spend in 2023 will be exceeded by the amount of money that they make. And then by 2027, 
you know, assuming they become profitable in 2023, by 2027, they will have completely come out of the red. By that point, they're expecting that all of this incurred losses in the years that have happened so far, and then 2021 and 2022 as well, those will be covered by the time 2027 rolls around. So after about a decade of operating the store. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they, they already quote this year as $139 million was already lost. Oh, shit. Was that 450 only... part of... Was that including this year as well? Oh, it was. Oh, sorry. A projected loss in 2021 already at $140 million. So, I mean, technically, it went $181 million in 2019, $273 million last year, and then this year. It's like half of that, so... Yeah, I think if we see next year's like if it's anywhere under a hundred million, then maybe what they're saying is not um, it's not completely unfounded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So presumably they've spent around the same amount of money, or like potentially more money, getting exclusive content onto their store. I wouldn't imagine they've spent less money getting new exclusive content and exclusive contracts for their store. So I have to imagine that if the projected loss in 2021 is a lower amount of money than last year. I have to assume that means that they are making a lot more money this year on the games that are going through their store. That would be my assumption. That would be my assumption too. Okay. Part of why they they also have this significant loss is because they only take a 12% cut mm-hmm. instead of the 30% cut that like most of them do. And I think, I think Valve's also guilty for that. I think it's a standard across the entirety of the industry to take a 30% right. cut. Though I would say that, and I know I'm not a developer for games, obviously, right? So, but I feel like Valve actually earns their 30% by way of the fact that they offer you like cloud saving and a bunch of other features that just fucking other stores don't have. Right. Cloud saving's the big one for me. Download servers in multiple regions, regional pricing, the ability to have your game be refunded and you don't have to fuck around with any of that shit universal controller configuration settings so that if your game doesn't happen to support a certain type of controller steam will just do it for you a forum that you don't have to run or or you have to moderate it but you don't have to like host a website to have a forum for people to report bugs and shit to you i know some developers are actually like really really against having a forum because they just don't want to talk to people who buy their products but I know that some people, times in the, people in the community can be complete assholes, but I don't think that just cutting them out entirely is the right approach. But yeah, and then like Valve also gives you the ability to put out like newsletters and patch notes and like easily patch your game across everybody who has it on Steam. So there's like a ton of things that they offer, I guess, and they have like an integrated achievement stuff and some other stuff in the API that I'm not super familiar with on the developer side. But it's not like they don't offer anything and then expect like to take 30% from you, right? There's a really good GDC talk from a few years ago where one developer who's been in the industry for as long as the industry has existed. So this guy was like, he was already in his working career before video games were even a thing. And then he pivoted his career into making video games once they became a thing. And he has been selling games since before Steam. And he's like, man, I swear, the developers nowadays, when they say that like Steam does, or Valve doesn't earn their 30% cut through Steam, they are completely wrong. You fucking go back to the 80s with me when video games were brand new and I had to email or I had to mail people a floppy <laughs> disk with the game and I had to cash their checks manually and I've always offered full refunds on all of my products. So if someone wanted a refund, I had to like manually go through that. He's like, I love the fact that Valve just does that now <laughs> for me so I don't have to. 
Yeah, no kidding. His whole thing was he's like, I feel like if people actually had to go through how big of a pain in the ass it used to be before all of these features were standardized on a platform that people just kind of used ubiquitously, then they would understand like what Valve is doing to earn that 30%. So they're doing a bunch of things for you to say you don't have to do them because it's, you don't have to run a fucking store. You don't have to run purchasing. You don't have to pay fucking like PayPal or some shit. You don't have to run a download <laughs> server to get people like the game. I know some developers do that anyway, but it depends on how much of a nerd particular development team happens to be. Like the Hat and Time guy, you can just download a Hat and Time from his website and pay him through PayPal. Really? Yeah, I get the impression that he's like, because he, he was a modder before, so I get the impression he's like a huge nerd. And other developers who are like really in the know with techie type <laughs> stuff will do stuff like that, but a lot of them are just like, ah, oh, here's a fucking link to the store page on Steam, go buy it there. I'm like, yeah, it's because it's it's hard shit to actually run a business and have like purchasing orders and all this other fucking shit if it's not managed through a store for you. Well, I mean, they say that the uh, best way to remove piracy is to availability. Yeah, it's availability. Yeah, piracy is an availability problem. It's not a fucking money problem or any other bullshit problem. It's a, it's a fucking availability problem. Well, I mean, I think I remember one example is the Hotline Two Miami developers. They couldn't get their game approved in Australia, and they said, "Just fuck it, just pirate it." Yeah, just pirate it. it. Yep. To that point, <laughs> when Steam launched in Russia and when it launched in China, people like bigger corporations and some out really outspoken developers were like, you are fucking crazy. These are two of the biggest centers of piracy. These people will never buy games. And, you know, Valve was said, no, we believe that if we provide the service, people will buy the games. And to their credit, they've made a fuckload of money off of people from Russia and China because they've offered the ability for people to just easily buy games. Piracy still happens in these regions, but there's sales coming from these regions now. Sales that just were not happening before because there was an availability problem. Yep. Makes sense. I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, if only we could get a universal Netflix. I mean, I feel like the U.S. is the only one that has a really bad Netflix. Because we have Ghibli in Canada. Ghibli films are only not available on the U.S. Netflix. All right, I think that's true. I know it's available on, like, most European ones, and I think it's available on most Asian ones, and I know it's available on Canada. I've been watching a lot of Studio Ghibli films recently. They're fucking amazing. I love those films. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to catch up on them. Honestly, I haven't I haven't seen many of them, but I haven't watched one that I don't like yet. So I'm. I, there probably is some, but Miranda keeps, like, curating the ones that I watch. <laughs> so she's like, oh, let's watch this one. And I oh, this is awesome. Like, we just watched... Um, was this, it was called Porco Rosso, I think was the name of it. Yeah, we watched that yesterday on date night, and it was really, really good. I liked that one a lot. It was about, uh, uh, you know, I'm not really sure what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch Spirited Away yet? Yeah, I've, I've seen Spirited Away a ton of times. You and I, or did you miss that family get-together? I probably missed that family get-together because I don't remember yeah. watching it there, but I watched it separately. We were at Aunt Carol and Uncle Will's place, and... Yeah, I think Jennifer, Jessica, and Michael, they, like, couldn't get... It was some other movie at the time that was, like, Spirit or something. It had Spirit in the title. They couldn't get it from the video rental store, so they got Spirited Away because that news had, like, a similar name. And that was, like, the first time I saw a Studio Ghibli film. And I thought it was so weird, but I also really liked it. I must have missed that one. I don't think you were there, and I'm thinking back to it, but... Yeah, so, and then as an adult, I watched Spirited Away again, and I'm like, yeah, this film actually was great. Like, 10-year-old me was not mistaken, this was a great film. <laughs> <laughs> what is another one that I really like? I keep forgetting the name of it, but it's one about, there's like this girl, and, and she is coming of age, and she decides that she really wants to dedicate herself to getting better at writing. Like, I thought that was a really good story. 
in that movie, the story that she writes, they spun it off and they made it its own film. And that one was really good too. Miranda showed me that one a few weeks ago. I can't remember the names for any of this, these films, but I'm sure that someone <laughs> who's familiar with these films is going to know immediately what the films are based off of the descriptions I'm giving because it's just like uh, just enough information to go off of. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that's <laughs> we're kind of <laughs> off topic, but whatever. Do you have anything else to add to the uh, <laughs> to the Epic game stuff? No, just kind of funny. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that this information was... I mean, like I know that it was brought to light as part of the ongoing legal battle with Epic and Apple, but it's just very interesting that that information was even made public at all, and it's very fascinating to see that, like, yeah, this company has 100% been losing a fuckload of money trying to buy their market share, but it looks like they might actually slowly but surely, they might actually be working their way towards becoming a sustainable member of PC menagerie of different storefronts from which you can buy games. Definitely possible. With enough money, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh. All that Fortnite money. Funny thing, though, I and I don't have the article for this, but Maz sent me this earlier this week and laughed at me. People yeah. who don't know, we live in Ontario. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan has a sizable investment in Epic Games. Oh, yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah, I think it had something to do with, like, Sony investing more money into Epic Games, and it was, like, alongside other investors, such as, and then, like, the last one is the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. As like, that is 100% in line with everything I know about the pension plan for the teachers in Ontario. Like, they have so many weird fucking investments. I mean, it makes sense. All their students are probably playing the damn game. They all know what an Epic Games is. Yeah, I suppose. And the guy who's the, the union member who's running the fucking pension plan is like, oh yeah, this is what all the kids are playing. This is a sound investment. I mean, my best man for my wedding was like, all the kids were like, Mr. David, we want to know like what your Fortnite user is. And he's like, I can't share that with the kids. David, the teacher? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. I don't think I ever asked him what he did for work. I just, the only, like, I think the best conversation we had during the weekend of your wedding was I found out he likes Monster Hunter and we both play hammers in Monster Hunter and then we just kept screaming hammer bro at each other at the top of our lungs while everyone was hung over that morning. <laughs> oh, I wish I knew that story. <laughs> That's funny. Now I know. This isn't a lot. Well, you were up super late. I went to bed pretty early that night because I was exhausted. So I was like one of the first people up. I think that I was up around the same time my parents were because my parents are fucking old people so they just get up at the same time every day regardless of when they go to sleep. I was in the lobby talking with them, and I think Aunt Carol and Uncle Will were also up early as well, and we went for breakfast, and then after that, yeah, just talking with David about Monster Hunter, and we were just shouting Hammer Bro at each other in the lobby, and everyone was like, stop, please. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's, by that point, everyone else who was like hungover as fuck was up, right? So these two morons are shouting at the top of their lungs. Oh, yeah, well, we would have been at a different hotel, that's why. Oh, yeah. Speaking anyway. of Sony... Kind of. Segway. <laughs> I don't know. I mentioned Sony before that. Or it in. Yeah. Just <laughs> fuck you. Whatever. <laughs> On April 9th, your boy, Jason Schreier. Did he come back with the thunder? He did come back with the thunder. He posted an article on Bloomberg titled, Sony's obsession with blockbuster IPs is stirring unrest within the PlayStation empire. So that came as a response to Sony announcing that they were going to not make a sequel to Days Gone and that they were going to release The Last of Us remastered on PlayStation 5 and that they were going to be focusing most of their efforts in the next generation on, you know, the blockbuster style releases that have acted as tentpoles throughout the PS4's life. Yeah, I don't think The Last of Us remake has been 100% confirmed, but 
it's yeah it's more than than likely yes yeah so i mean i don't need to get into like the specifics of the the articles because it kind of just it talks about how people are not happy about the lack of diversity in sony's or what this kind of forecasts but for my angle, I kind of feel like that was the most logical step for them. That makes a lot of sense to me that they would want to do that. Now, some people may give me some flack for saying this, but like a lot of the major developers have already done this. Like almost all of them have, in fact. Nintendo has really focused its vision in on like a couple of core franchises, and outside of that, it doesn't really. It publishes a few smaller games and occasionally brings out some of the other ones from the, the vault. Yeah, the vault. Typically, what are you getting when you get a Nintendo a new Nintendo console? You're getting a new Mario Kart, or in the case of the Switch, a remastered one, but whatever. Same idea. You're getting a new Smash Brothers. You're getting a new Mario game. You're getting a new Zelda game. And you're yeah, maybe Animal getting Crossing a new game. Animal Crossing and a new Pokemon, and a new Pokemon game. game, depending on if it's a handheld or not. Which now that you know they kind of merged those two things, you're definitely getting a new Pokemon game. <laughs> you can go back to like any number of Nintendo consoles, and like those kind of pillars are there every single time, propping up all of their systems since like forever and then ubisoft yeah or like yeah you just point to <laughs> all, you can, all open world you games. can point to any number of fucking companies and you can just be like this is what this company makes at this point microsoft gears of war halo, halo. forza forza oh yeah forza yeah forza yep those are the three i feel like there's another big one they make but i'm having a big old brain fart on it but yeah or like bethesda it's like okay they have fucking the elder scrolls and they have fallout and to a lesser extent if you include the broader stuff they have doom and they have Arcane games. I was going to say, Arcane's kind of like their wild card studio. Arcane's allowed to do fun stuff. <laughs> or like Square yeah. Enix, they do Dragon Quest, they do Final Fantasy, they do Tomb Raider. They do JRPGs and mobile. Yeah, and mobile stuff, yeah. I'm not really surprised that Sony is now kind of narrowing their focus in on those really big temple releases that did really, really well for them. Because those are some of the best-selling games on the PlayStation 4. Yep. You actually own a PlayStation 4, and you're planning on getting a PlayStation 5. What are your kind of thoughts? Because you're a little bit more invested in their ecosystem than I am, certainly. So, I mean, some of my favorite games are the kind of the, the niche ones. Like, I loved the Gravity Rush games. I loved two, but now they've fortunately shut down that studio. So that was definitely not. That a was three. Studio coming. Japan, right? Stu- yeah, Studio Japan. Okay. I don't know. I just think I get what you're saying because yeah, they want to focus on. It makes sense to focus on what you're good at, right? Yeah, it's just. And I know those probably those games weren't really ones that truly sold people. They just kind of kept maybe them busy until mm-hmm. the big blockbuster hit. But that just means I think Sony just needs to have almost more blockbuster hits than last gen based off of that logic, though, just to keep people like invested in getting the console. Because if nothing comes out, I mean, then again, with how it's selling out constantly because of the shortages, maybe that's not 100% true. <laughs> they can just do whatever they want and it'll sell like bananas. Yeah, I feel like, and maybe there's just people who might not feel this way, but I feel like if you're purchasing a PlayStation, you probably already like these types of games, at least to some extent. Yeah. And that's why you're, you've, you know, you kind of remained in that ecosystem, right? For a while, Yakuza was only available on PlayStation. It's available on Xbox now, but for a while, if you're like, oh, I like Japanese-focused games, like, okay, I gotta buy a PlayStation then, even if I don't like, you know, this other crap that the PlayStation studios are putting out. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, it seems like Sony's stepping away from the Japanese market and taking more of a Western approach. And that's kind of what this article is more or less 
Do I think all of their well. major hits came from their Western bot studios? I mean, yeah, the, the market share has yeah, been more focused on the Western. I mean, it's actually been a decline in the Japanese, but they're not like essentially reinforcing their Japanese roots anymore. I get where this move is coming from. Mm-hmm. I don't really agree that The Last of Us should be the one that's the remake. That just seems... And I know your thoughts on this. Yeah. Like, it makes the most sense money-wise. I talked about this on my stream last week. I dug up some numbers. So it's actually an excellent segue. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) But yeah, so if Naughty Dog is your, like, spearheaded, they're like your main superstar, big chungus studio, right? And they're... I mean, which they are. Yeah, exactly. So when they make a game and it is extremely expensive to develop... So, like, as of the last time that sales numbers were put out for The Last of Us 2, it's 7.2 million units. That is nothing to sneeze at, but that is also not the kind of units you want your star studio to move on a console that has almost a 100 million unit install base. Yeah, 114 is what I read the other day. So, when you have a studio that spends presumably between, like, four and five years developing this game in various capacities, and they churn through a ton of staff and do a ton of crunch work. You know that shit's kind of expensive. So how the fuck do you recoup some of those costs? Because if you don't make them up in the sales of the new product you just put out, you got to do something else to pay the fucking bills. You re-re-re-re-re-re-re-re-re-re-release it. Yeah, exactly. So putting out The Last of Us remaster on PS5, okay, we barely have to do any work because we already had it working on the PS4 and the PS4 and the PS5 have the same shit under the hood. So we can just put it out and hopefully get a bunch of, you know, we're triple dipping on this. We can get a bunch of extra sales to help pad out the bottom line. And then Sony, you know, Big Papa Sony is happy with the amount of money our studio is bringing in instead of being pissed off that we spent a bunch of money on The Last of Us 2 and it didn't necessarily return the amount of money they were expecting it to. I have no doubt that game turned a profit, but I don't think it probably turned as much of a profit as they were expecting Mm -hmm. to kind of elaborate on that just a teensy little bit. Horizon Zero Dawn, which was released in 2016, has sold... So all the numbers aren't super updated, but I'll tell you the year that the, the numbers are from. So Horizon Zero Dawn, which was released in 2016 has sold over 10 million copies as of 2019. The number's a little bit out of date. It's probably much higher by now. It also has an additional 1 million, estimated 1 million sales from Steam. God of War, which was released in 2018, has sold over 10 million units as of 2019. I would hazard a guess that that number is probably closer to 20 million now, but obviously I don't have numbers from 2020 to verify that. Spider-Man, which was released in 2018 as well, has sold over 20 million units. That's a number that's as of 2020, so that's a little bit closer to recent days. And that is the best-selling game on the PS4. And Uncharted 4, A Thief's End, came out in 2015 and has sold over 16 million copies as of 2016, or 2019. rather. These are the kinds of numbers that I have to imagine Sony was kind of expecting The Last of Us 2 to have. Very specifically, you can look at the God of War and Spider-Man. These are games that were by the end of 2019, or I guess, sorry, God of War is the only one that has the 2018 to 2019 numbers, but like it sold over 10 million units in its first year on the market, right? Like that's probably the kind of sales numbers that Sony was hoping for with The Last of Us 2, probably even more than that. And, you know, it didn't necessarily hit that mark. And I have to imagine The Last of Us 2 is probably more expensive to make than God of War. 
there's a oh, yeah. number of videos and articles that delve into why I think that is. It specifically has to deal with the work culture around Naughty Dog and their inability to find animators who are willing to work for them because of how shitty it is to work at that studio. That's why I think this is probably motivated by it's them trying to triple dip on something that wouldn't take a lot of effort and a lot of money to put out and presumably, you know, people will buy it again because... I don't know, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it's yeah. it's a game that you can probably, if you already own it on the PS4, I have to imagine, you can probably just play it on the PS5. Well, and I'm pretty sure it's on the collection for PS Plus. So oh, yeah, that's a good point. If you buy the PS5 and get a PS subscription, you own that game. Mm-hmm. Just not the remake that they're planning on, so. The remake that probably has no discernible large differences that aren't just market speak. You just get to play as Abby at the end. <laughs> That's they're gonna be their one big addition. They're just gonna be like context for the second game. Yeah, fucking Abby just randomly appears at the end of the game. They retcon yeah. a bunch of fucking bullshit in that makes the second game story suddenly make more sense. Oh, do you think they're actually? I'm almost curious to watch a playthrough of it just to see what they've changed. I only just now thought of that. Honestly, I think this is gonna be like a quick and dirty wham bam thank you ma'am kind of deal where they're just trying to get the money. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Look, enhanced loading times. Yeah, but like the fucking PS4 version is going to have that just by virtue of being on better hardware. Yeah, exactly. It's very much like when you get a PC upgrade, right? Like the game still works. You don't need to buy the game again. Oh, wait, no, now you do. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the logic is there. I feel like they're just trying to take advantage of people, which is really shitty. Yep. So that's all I have to say on that. Okay. Well, Let's get into a viewer question from Mass, which will inevitably be a uh, bit of a doozy here. So this week, Mass found out I know jack shit about Football Manager and found that very upsetting. I mean, to be fair, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, but his question, well, he's got a two-parter here, but it, it has some context. But So he found out I know jack shit about it, and he wanted to ask specifically about player-created stories and their impact on the ability to keep the player immersed in the game's narrative. His point of references for this question are Football Manager and Pro Cycling Manager, which are both games that he really enjoys playing. He's also very into both of those sports, but the one-two questions here is like, what is it devs keep mistaking for immersion, which ends up with incidents like the Mass Effect 3 ending thing? And two is like, which games have succeeded or failed for the two of you in this regard and why. And he included a a story here, and I'll kind of gloss over it just so people have the same kind of high-level context that we do for this. He spoke about how there was this uh, sixth season with one of his favorite players, and they were second. They had certain standings at the end of that season in the European football, whatever the hell. See, I don't know the fucking soccer terms for this shit. And then he regales this whole story about how they, like, just narrowly ended up, like, qualifying for one of the prestigious cups that they were going to be playing in. And then just because of the way that the game ended up playing out with the systems in it, they just barely lost to their rivals and then ended up coming like third place or some shit by a single point. And that was like a really memorable story for him. I'm not doing it justice here. The thing he's got written out is very detailed and very involved. But like fundamentally, the questions are relating to how systems-driven games can tell really interesting and really personal stories that are created 
buy the game systems for the player and then the player uses their imaginations to fill in kind of some of the blanks. So in this example, if you just look at it very clinically, it's just like, oh, this, you know, this team ended up beating them out. But in like Maz's version of regaling those events, it was their bitter rivals because they'd had a storied history throughout the entire season. So the fact that they lost to them in this cup was actually like a really big deal because it's like, oh, it's our fucking like rival team. And then we lost to them and we almost missed coming in like third place which, you know, they needed to do because then they would, like, lose funding or some shit. And that kind of storytelling is really immersive for Maz because it gets him very involved in the world and the story the game is telling by way of all these systems interlocking with one another versus the more Hollywood style of stories where you get your uncharteds, where it's just like the story is told one way and it has a beginning, a middle, and end, and everyone sees the exact same thing and everyone experiences the exact same thing. In this case, Maz has like a very personal story that only affects him where very specific details are only true for his specific playthrough. And he got really invested in the team and how they performed and the different relationships that were built up with other teams throughout that season. Where do you want to start with that? I mean, my best example for a game that succeeded is the Shadow of War and Shadow of Mordor games. Because Mm -hmm. in those games, the system with the Nemesis system uh, that we've talked about previously, yeah, patented. God damn it. Can't get into any of the other games, oh. um, but it, it can in this. You're able to create the stories through the orcs that you fight. And so I even I have like one little story where I, because your mission is basically to kind of kill off the orcs in certain ones. So yeah. I had all five of like essentially the henchmen for this one orc leader like brainwashed. And during this one scene, I had it triggered and then they all betrayed him at the same time and, and like I was just sitting and waiting for, and watching them kill So they just leader. all like turn around and just start beating the shit out of him? Yeah, pretty much. That's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome because you're just he's like, ah, everyone, get him and then <laughs> You just turn around and they start just beating the hell out of him? All the leaders are just like, ah, it's time for my big betrayal moment. There were a few that weren't also brainwashed, but they so they had their own little skirmishes. But I was just sitting, watching, pretty much. And you're just able to, like, just... Like the puppet master them. from the fucking shadows, laughing pretty maniacally. Much. I have a pretty good story on that note as well from Shadow of Mordor, if I can interrupt for a second. Sure. Because I actually played that one. I didn't feel the need to play the sequel, but there's this one guy, every time I got into, like, really long skirmishes, I was just like, because you know how the combat is in that game, where you can just get surrounded by a bunch of guys, and they'll take turns individually attacking you, and then you beat the shit out of them, (laughs) and then another one comes in. Yes. So I was fighting, like, a couple of the kind of, like, mid-range boss-type guys, and they had a bunch of their minions surrounding me, and I couldn't get out. But then there's this one asshole who had a crossbow, and he would just shoot me from across the map, and, like, get a headshot, and then just one hit kill me. And he did this several times to me and kept taunting me from like a million miles away. I hated this guy so much. And every time I tried to kill him, the game kept bringing him back because we had so many interactions. The game was like, yeah, this guy's like your most nemesis nemesis. He's not allowed to die. Like he'd have like the poison or it'd be like revived due to like the dark forces and shit like that. And you'd be like, no, die. (laughs) Leave me alone. Precisely. Yeah. And it was really funny because, like, this guy spent the entire, like, every time I saw him, I'm like, this degenerate's going to shoot me from half a mile away. I'm not going to be able to get close enough to do anything if I try and do anything to him. Like, I'll get surrounded and he'll just pick me off from a range like he always does, like the little coward bitch he is. 
And it was really satisfying for me because like the, in the final confrontation, you get to fight off against like your ultimate rival and sure as shit, it's him. But in the final confrontation, it's like you have five orc captains with you and your like big nemesis has five orc captains with them and they go off and they just like kind of smash into each other and you get like a one-on-one duel with your whoever your ultimate nemesis was. This guy had a crossbow still. I see where this is going. I fucking destroyed him. I killed him so bad he died multiple times. <laughs> It was very gratifying, but that's like a very good example of that same kind of like the very personal story. It's just like, yeah, this guy was just like a complete piece of shit degenerate and he kept picking me off from like way off in Bumblefuck land. And when I finally got to kill him, I was just like, Dad, take it. How does it feel? How does it feel? (laughs) (laughs) See, I totally get what you mean with. And it's like an experience that, you know, like not everyone is going to have because of the way that the systems in that game work. Yeah, it's custom to you. Mm hmm. Whereas my other example, or my failed example, would be Mafia 3, where it was just like, you can go anywhere you want in this one, if it's the same shit, just copy and paste it over the map, and then you can maybe decide at the end whether you shank, like, the leader of the area, or you don't. So, like, I mean, there's player choice, but it's really... The illusion of choice? Yeah, it's more the illusion of choice. Kind of like that with Walking Dead. It's like you're always on the exact same path. There's diverging paths, but like in that story based on your choices, but it'll always meet back up at the exact same path in the end. Yeah, Telltale, yeah, games in general mm-hmm. do that. So my specific example for like player-driven stories is Total War Warhammer 2. And I know that Maz is going to be like, you fucking nerd trash bringing up Warhammer. <laughs> When I originally played that game in 2019, I had wanted to write a post about this exact topic, but at the time I was not smart enough to do that. And the first half of the post was about this particular battle that I fought. So I was playing the High Elf faction, and it was toward the end of the game, and I'd hit one of the major milestones in the campaign. And at that point, the game decided to send a huge army of Skaven, which were kind of like a huge opposition force for the, uh, the High Elves, at me. I fought this just relentless battle. There was this one settlement I didn't want to lose. It would super duper fuck me if I lost this settlement. So I sent all of my best troops to this settlement just before they got descended upon by the Skaven army. And I had to just... There was like six different Skaven armies all invading this one place all at once. And all I had was like two armies in that particular settlement. I was just dealing with like wave after wave after wave of just hordes of enemies coming and like having to defend the castle through all of this. And it was just like the most like epic. It felt like this giant like crazy Lord of the Rings style war that had just gone on for like seven days and seven nights kind of shit, right? Like at the end of it, there was just fucking like bodies everywhere and the Skaven finally retreated. But it's like, did we really win? We suffered severe casualties. We lost like a ton of really like well-trained units. I lost like fucking two of my hero units in the process of doing that, which I was really pissed off about because they're not easy to replace. But we survived the vermin tide. You know, it's just like a bunch of fucking like these tiny ass units and these giant blobs that you have no control over. It felt like the same kind of like intimate battle scene that you would find in Lord of the Rings or 300 or just like any number of those kind of movies that have those like really wide, crazy battle scenes. But then it like pulls the camera in really close on whoever like the main characters are and it focuses in on like a more personal fight. It felt like that after I'd spent like two hours (laughs) defending this stupid fucking castle from stuff. 
And that's something that's only born out of the fact that the way that the game interacts and then, you know, human imagination fills in the blanks. So it's, it just felt like this huge epic battle, even though it was just like a really long skirmish in a real-time strategy game. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, you kind of got attached to your units, I would imagine. Yeah, like I said, the hero units are the ones that definitely were the, the bigger ones because they're the ones you actually have to level up. They're not easy to replace. And then the fact that I like, you know, had to sacrifice a few of those to take out like huge battalions of the enemy was kind of a, it was a bit of a bummer, but it was what was required to actually win the day. That's like one of my favorite examples, but there's like a ton of smaller interactions in that game. Like how when I was playing a Skaven campaign, one of the things they can do is they can build cities underneath colonies that steal resources from the actual cities. So I'd taken over the continent I started on, and I was allied with this other guy on this other continent, because I showed up and I'm like, I'm a Skaven, you're a Skaven, let's work together to wipe out all of the lizard people on this continent, besides you're losing anyway, so you need my help. I teamed up with him, but like, as soon as I captured a base, I started building these undercities underneath all of his fucking bases. What are undercities? The Skaven are the rats. So you have like a city that the rats dug underneath the city above ground and it steals resources that you can use to support your own army so i was like stealing resources from this guy who i was supposed to be working with and like (laughs) yeah and after we took over the whole fucking continent i betrayed him and i like had all my undercities attack his cities and i just fucking wiped him out and stole all of his shit (laughs) i mean does the opposite happen to you potentially or no i was really in the mindset of a skaven war general so i'm like oh we we don't trust other skaven units there we're all a bunch of backstabbing pieces of shit so i had like specific buildings in my cities to detect if an undercity was there so i could immediately just fucking destroy this guy for betraying me but then like yeah I, we took over the entire continent and i just fucking betrayed him and killed him anyway <laughs> not gonna trust frosty in that regard i like doing evil shit in games you look at it and it's like total war games in general are basically just like giant spreadsheet style games But there's these stories that you get totally immersed in and you just like lose several hours playing these games. You don't even realize it because you're so involved in this narrative that is coming about because of how the game systems are interlocking and working together. I get exactly what Maz is saying. It's just that I got it for a very different style of game. I think that XCOM and Civilization are also like really good examples of games that have those kind of emergent stories. Because I feel like those stories are only so, like, immersive and they grab you so well because they're so personalized and they're built around game mechanics and very specific interactions that you see. I feel like that's kind of probably why they end up being so immersive in the first place, right? Yeah. To, like, kind of the first question that Maz posed, I I feel like that's probably why you end up with, you know, these more system-driven games having the ability to tell stories that are dynamic, that let the player have like a more personalized experience instead of ones that are fully directed where everything is going off in a scripted way. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? I mean, we kind of answered mostly for two. You know, I didn't feel like there's as much to say with one, (laughs) unless you have other things to add. I mean, short answer would be time, money, lack of direction. Fundamental misunderstanding of what makes this entire medium interesting to engage with. Yeah, that's the short answer. (laughs) You know. <laughs> well, I hope we answered that question well enough. Yeah, probably. Thank you again for asking that, Maz. Yeah, as always. And and I know I keep putting it in the post, but if anyone else wants to ask questions for us to talk about or submit kind of discussion-based questions, feel free to do so. You can DM me them to me on Twitter. You can send them over Discord. Tweet them at us. You can put them on the blog, whatever. Just any way you want to reach out is fine. And if it's, uh, if it's you know, if you don't ask something completely 
ridiculous. Like, if you're not asking us to, like, dox ourselves or whatever, like, we'll, we'll probably answer it. <laughs> I live at... No. It's like, what's your credit card number? Well, it's... <laughs> no. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's time to move on to games we've been playing? Yeah, it's your turn to start this week. Oh, is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What you been playing? So I took a Friday off a couple weeks back. This would have been the week that the last episode went out. And I played through Firewatch. It's remarkably good. Yeah, it's been a while since I played that one. Yeah, I hadn't had any interest in playing it up until this point because I saw Walking Sim and Story Driven and... Every time I see those two words next to each other, it's always just you holding down the W key on your keyboard. <laughs> You're not wrong. And then a story talks at you the entire time, and you get to hear about usually really interesting events that happened before you were in the place that you are in. And that's not very interesting, because it's like, oh, an interesting story happened, and now I'm just observing it from, like, I'm basically just a fucking camera, just wandering around getting, like, the bits and pieces of it yeah. after the fact. Dear Esther and... um. Everyone's gone to the rapture comes to mind. Yeah, I was going to say rapture especially, is probably the poster the last, child yeah, for the that. One. Yeah, but I have played What Remains of Edith Finch before, and that was a walking sim that understood that it was a video game. So I'm not going to say it's the best mm-hmm. game out there, but it like remembered, oh yes, video games. That's the medium that this is in. We should make this like a compelling experience and have some like mechanics and involve the player to try and tell the story that we're trying to tell. And I think they did that reasonably successfully. I won't say that Edith is the most, it's not the most mechanically complex game, but I feel like the themes and the kind of structure and the philosophical questions that it asks are a little bit more where the complexity of that comes in. So it's a more cerebral experience, but it's still involved enough as a game to be a game. It kept changing like the core gameplay so that you kept kind of kept you on your toes. Like one part it would be like kind of comic themed and then the next part it would be you'd be like the, more of in a first person mm-hmm. kind of perspective. Yeah. It wasn't until Miranda was talking with me. She said I might get something out of Firewatch. I trust her opinions on things, obviously. So picked it up when it was on sale and we played through it together. And she'd already seen a bunch of Let's Plays of it, so she knew she couldn't enjoy it because she kind of already knew what the central premise of the game was, but she was Mm -hmm. interested in seeing me play it. So I played through the entire game with her. Afterwards, I was like, okay, what was different about other playthroughs? So I guess spoilers for Firewatch now. It's a short enough game we have to almost put it up. Yeah. The whole game is about perception, and a lot of the game does a lot of really smart things where it it involves the player in the decision-making process. The player has the ability to choose what they think is happening. So there's a bunch of different like subplots that can go in a couple of different directions based on the way that the game has written for them. And it will try and lead you down one of those paths. Yeah, it does a really smart job of like being convincing in the way that it makes it seem like your choices really matter. And by it like really actively engages you as a member of the storytelling instead of just telling you a story. You're like a part of that process. I don't think the conclusion is like really great, but like the journey throughout the game is pretty good. So I really enjoyed that. From a design perspective, I think that the game is way more interesting than it is like mechanically. And I wrote as much in an article that you should all go read. It's on my blog, frostylight.ca. So yeah, that's kind of like what Firewatch is all about. Do you remember what... Like, anything about your playthrough? Oh, it's been so long. Um, 
Let me see, like, when I... So, if I say, like, a few generalized things, do you think that would be enough to, like, give, like, a yay-nay kind of thing? Yeah, probably. Okay. Did you flirt with Delilah? No. Okay. Did you think that all of the events in the game were motivated by some kind of crazy, superstitious cult? Mm, No, I didn't get that. Okay. Did you think that, like, the government was watching you? I believe so, yeah. Okay. We actually had quite a few things in common then. I played the entire game as myself, so everything was, like, super grounded in reality, and everything was, like... The government's taking my money. Yeah, well, it's, like, everything (laughs) has to be, like, logically explained, so... I guess the other thing was, your wife dead in your playthrough or not? Yes. Okay, so my playthrough, she was still alive. See, when I played it, I wasn't married yet, because I played it in (laughs) June of 2017, so... If my wife's listening to the podcast, you were technically a fiancé at that point, so... Whatever. <laughs> Technicality. Shush. <laughs> like, Henry's wife, I guess, was still alive. So when Delilah started, like, hitting on Henry, I'm like, I'm not okay with this. I'm a married man. Like, fuck off, man. Let's fuck off, lady. So I was, like, very cold and, like, super unreceptive to all of her advances. Mm-hmm. So, like, we had, like, she kept, like, trying to, like, hit on Henry, and I was just, like, not having any of it. So, eventually, she just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought it was really interesting, because I remember at the time, like, when it released, a lot of people complained about how, like, Henry and Delilah don't end up together. And I'm like, well, obviously, they wouldn't end up together. Delilah, just the way she's written, I can't imagine, even in, like, the route where you're flirting with her, she's, like, total flake. I don't mean that, it, I, I do mean that in an offensive way, but, like, she's the kind of person who, like, does not commit to anything. That's 100% how she's characterized throughout the entire game. So there's no way. If you go down like the romantic route, it makes perfect sense that she fucks off in the end. There's points where like you're supposed to meet up and then like because they you, you just don't. I didn't even right? I didn't even have points where they were supposed to meet up, but the only time she was like I can't remember. It's been so long. Well, the only time they would have met up is when they're like retreating at the end of the game and I just told her to fucking leave before Henry even got there. I'm just like, I don't care if I fucking meet you in person, you can just leave. <laughs> I had my turtle, that was all I cared about. Ah, the turtle. Yeah, Bucket Jr. Or at least he was Bucket Jr. in my playthrough. And yeah, I played everything else like super straight lace. So when the girls disappeared and when like all like the whole who's like watching us stuff kind of happened, I'm like, there's someone out in the woods watching us right now. And that was it. It wasn't like there was like no like cultist or superstitious shit. I'm like, somebody is out in this woods and they don't want us to fucking find out what's in this cave. And that's exactly what was happening. So I just like viewed the entire game through like a very grounded very realist perspective instead of leaning into like any of the superstitious shit yeah that's yeah you're probably right we probably played pretty much the same i had what was probably like what ended up being like a probably a very boring and a very muted playthrough but i really enjoyed it and then like i was talking with miranda about it afterwards and finding out what other types of stuff people did in the let's play she'd watched and i was like it's fascinating to listen to, like how different my playthrough was from theirs and then i like did a bit of research and i'm like this is legitimately really interesting from a design perspective which is why i wrote about it on my blog yeah it's it's a really really interestingly designed game i think a lot of other types of games could benefit from adopting the way it does dialogue specifically the fact that like talking to or ignoring a person has an impact on how they choose to engage with you in future conversations one of the things that bugs me the most with rpg conversations is that every person you talk to is just like their conversations are just like a bunch of info dumps and they don't actually feel like real conversations with an actual human being 
I feel like the ability <laughs> to like what you choose and what you don't choose should actually impact how that person continues to talk to you and what like how they interact with you instead of just being like, oh, option one, info dump, option two, info dump, option three, info dump, option four, info dump, because like, then it fucking feels like you just might as well be reading a book. So yeah, <laughs> Firewatch, pretty interesting game. Uh, not my typical kind of wheelhouse, but no, I... definitely not yours. Yeah, I really enjoyed it from a design perspective. That weekend, we also played Ouija's Mansion 3. It's a pretty fun game. It's probably one of the best games on the Switch. I mentioned it... Um... A while back, but I hadn't really gone to playing it again because my wife hoards the Switch. Yeah, so we played it cooperatively. The co-op mode in that game is not a co-op mode. So who was uh, Goo Luigi? I was Luigi and Miranda was Gooigi. She was the moist, viscous Luigi. And a lot of our viewers just cringed from moist. Well, they can eat my ass. So the way the game is designed, you're supposed to switch between the two characters in a lot of the cases. Mm-hmm. So when it's co-op, like 95% of the game is one person playing while the other person watches. Fundamentally, it's a single-player game, right? So, like, when Luigi's doing a Luigi-specific segment, then Luigi has nothing to do. And the same is true of, like, Luigi when... or Luigi when Luigi's doing a Luigi segment. The only times we actually got to play at the same time was during, like, combat arenas when we were just beating the shit out of everything on the screen, which was very, very, very funny. I can imagine that's much easier, or did they kind of... I don't know. Is there a balancing? I have no idea. We played the entire game co-op. I have not played the game at all, single player, so I don't know if they added more shit in. I don't think the game would be challenging without a second person playing, because, like, you just suplex the ghosts into one another, and they basically just die that way. (laughs) That's true. I found it to be a return kind of to form. I found it a lot better than Luigi's Mansion 2, which I really didn't like. It doesn't have exactly the same charm as the first game, but... It definitely tried to kind of keep some things in line with what made the first game so good. I liked how each of the different hotel floors had kind of their own different theme and different mechanics that came with that. Mm-hmm. Not all the boss fights work, but like most of them do. So the final boss in that game is fucking obnoxious garbage though. Holy <laughs> shit. You shared that with oh me. Oh my god. It's so... Uh... So, like, most of the game is designed around the fact that the game's controls are kind of fiddly and not super precise, but holy shit, the final boss is not. Anyone who's played it knows exactly what I'm talking about. The big thing for me was that you see so you're fighting, like, King Boo, because of course you are, because it's a Luigi's Mansion game. I don't think that's a spoiler. No, not It's really. a Nintendo game. They follow fucking patterns. It's like saying that Ganon is the boss of fucking a Legend of Zelda game, or Bowser is the final boss of a Mario game, but... Yeah, fighting King Boo, and to, like, damage King Boo, you have to fire a bomb off into his mouth. The bombs are lit, so they'll explode after a little bit. The targeting reticle for this is so fucking tiny, and the camera's panned back so far that I could not, for the life of me, see where the fucking targeting reticle was at any point in time during that fight. So, like, Miranda well, had to do... because you have grandma eyes. Yeah. We've already determined this. Yeah, I today. guess that's true. So, like, Miranda had to do all of the fucking firing for that segment, and it was still, like, a complete crapshoot, because it's like, if he threw out the bombs and then decided to attack immediately afterwards, like, the bomb wouldn't go in his mouth. And, like, the final, you gotta throw bombs in his mouth, like, three times and then whip him around a bit to kill him, or eat him in your vacuum. (laughs) Eat him in your vacuum? I don't want to use the S word. Suck? Yeah. (laughs) Why not? Fine. Just suck him up into your vacuum. 
So the third and final part of the fight has a five minute timer. But if King Boo just decides he's going to like throw the bombs out at you and then immediately attack afterwards during all five of those minutes, there's just like no way to fire a bomb into his mouth. Although I did find out that that Will and Miranda's mom just did like a yellow swag move. There's one bomb move where he just drops like a million bombs on the stage at the same time and he stands still while he does that. If you use the doing the sucking, if you do the pushing thing, instead oh he eats a bomb yeah like a million bombs will fly at him and one of them might go in his mouth because he's not moving so it'll actually work <laughs> and i'm like wow that's fucking fucking 360 no scope 420 69 pro gamer strats right there combo, combo. Oh, oh, oh. generally speaking it's a pretty fucking it's a pretty charming game it's a pretty enjoyable game, and unlike a lot of other Switch games, I wasn't colossally disappointed by it, because it didn't have a bunch of needless padding, didn't have, it wasn't diluted to shit, it wasn't a completely different game from the previous games in the uh, series, it didn't have less content than the previous games in the series, it wasn't full of a bunch of grinding, it was just like a fun game that was allowed to exist as a fun game, instead of some fucking dumb bullshit. You can insert any number of Nintendo properties you want to into those different categories. I just listed off several of them apply. <laughs> and then the other thing I've been playing is a Disgaea. Well, I, I've been playing I've been playing Them's Fighting Herds as well, but I'm not going to talk about that again. I have nothing new to say. So yeah, Disgaea. That'll be next week. Maybe. But yeah, so Disgaea was the very last game that was on my backlog of games to play. So my backlog's actually empty right now, as I'm just finishing off Disgaea. So... That was originally back last year. A viewer, frequent watcher of the show, or listener of the show, listener of the show, AK from Everything Is Bad For You, fellow blogger, he is really into Disgaea. And he wrote an entire post about why he loves Disgaea. And after reading that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to play Disgaea. Which one would you recommend starting with? And he's like, yeah, just go with the first one. I'm like, okay, I will trust that the first one is a good place to start. And you know what? I am actually really enjoying the game. It's very grindy, but it's got enough mechanics in it to where I am really enjoying it. I don't think any of the mechanics on their own are like difficult to understand. There's a lot of really, really kind of simple mechanics that make up how it works, but it does a lot of things in it that fix a lot of the things that I commonly criticize in other kind of like Japanese RPGs. I mean, don't you mean that this is an SRPG? Yeah, we're not going to call it a strategy RPG, because that implies that other RPGs don't have any strategy in them, which is stupid. I mean, some don't, but, you We've know. We've already had this discussion. <laughs> no, we had a discussion on Discord. I was a huge... I was, I was going, like, real, um, actually, fucking <laughs> nerding on your ass with that shit, but whatever. I... I hate labels you didn't even let me respond at any point it just was like i'm having my say shut up yeah it's just fucking <laughs> just going off <laughs> but uh some of the things that it does that i think that it specifically does that fix problems that i have in other jrpgs number one there is no random encounters each chapter is split up into like a map and you just play or each chapter is split up into like a couple of maps and you just play those maps so it's just like you play one encounter and then you're done with that part of the chapter mm-hmm Number two, uh, every attack has a reason to exist. In most JRPGs, you'll just get a stronger attack, and then there's no reason to use your weaker attacks in this. You have a basic attack, and your basic attack can be used for combo team attacks, and then you have a variety of special attacks. All of those special attacks have different hitboxes and different elemental properties, which gives you a valid reason to Mm -hmm. use them over other things if the enemies are positioned in certain ways, or you can make enemies get positioned in certain ways to utilize them. Number three, you can actually meaningfully control the position of the enemies. 
there's a mechanic where you can lift characters. You can either lift the enemies or you can lift your own characters. If you lift your own characters, you can get into these crazy movement-based combos where you're just whipping people all over the map to cover a huge amount of distance. By the same token, if you want to line up like a really like a particular special attack that hits in a certain type of hitbox, then you can just like pick enemies up and whip them into position, which is really cool. It's like one of the big problems with Yakuza Like a Dragon was that you couldn't meaningfully impact how enemies were positioned, and you can do that in this, which is fucking great. So you're saying Yakuza 8 needs to be a strategy RPG? It needs to be. going to go to an RPG Yeah, it needs to be Disgaea, is what I'm saying. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And the story is, it's not super duper involved. I really like how the characters are written, though. So the main character, Laharl, is really nihilistic, and he's, like, cartoonishly evil. Because he's like the king of the underworld, or I guess he kind of he kind of becomes the king of the underworld, but whatever. Then his like his main vassal Etna is just totally taking the piss. She doesn't respect him at all, and constantly just like she's just like a she's just a real sass monster. And then that's foiled against Flan, who is this like angel character who's all like she only sees like the good in people and talks about like redeeming Laharl from being like an evil piece of shit really interesting just seeing these char- how these characters kind of like bounce off of each other and act as foils for one another that and the fact that Etna is just like super sarcastic and super sassy I fucking love her she's the greatest she's the greatest character in this game she's just unrelentingly mean to like every character it's very funny <laughs> I mean there's a reason why this game has been like I think this is there's six it's been like re-released over and over again no I mean like number one. Oh yeah people really like this one yeah, it's missing a few quality of life features that the future games have. Like, one thing I noticed was that healing characters don't get EXP from healing, so you have to Ooh. you have to finagle getting damage-based spells onto them so they can actually level up. That's never good. Yeah, and from just Gaia 2 onward, they um they you get fucking EXP for healing, so that's like a big kind of thing that's missing from the first game. Although the first game is apparently... This is a PS2 game. Mm-hmm. I was like, damn, I thought this was a Vita game. Nope. No, the PC version is like a. I think it's a Vita port. It's really good. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, it. I don't. I don't think. Um, Disgaea One was on around the Vita. We really? had um three and four as um re-releases essentially. PlayStation port. Oh, it was on the PSP. Ah, okay, that would make sense. I remember seeing it on the DS as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's that's listed here as well. See, I keep, I've been having a lot of fun with it. I'm glad I gave it a try. I think I'll probably... I don't know if I want to pick up... It's kind of like with Yakuza. I probably don't want to pick up a, another entry in the long-running franchise immediately, but I think I might pick up some of the uh, other Disgaea games in the future at some point once I'm done with this one. But yeah, it's pretty good. You'll have to ask AK for the recommendation on the next one. Well, I think all of them are on Steam, so I think I can just go to Disgaea 2 next. Oh, fair enough. Double check that real quick. Everything except for Disgaea 3 is on PC. Really? Disgaea 3 is not on PC? Do huh. not see it. Yeah, they've got Disgaea, Disgaea 2, Disgaea 4, and Disgaea 5. They do not have Disgaea 3 on PC. Huh. Yeah, it's That's interesting. Weird. I wonder if they're planning on bringing it out eventually. Not that one, Disgaea 3. Well, 6 is exclusive to the Switch. For now. For now. 3 was apparently on the Vita. I got to imagine yes. it wouldn't be super hard to port over to PC because there's a ton of Vita releases already on PC. But yeah, that might be something they bring over eventually. It's kind of confusing that they've got 1, 2, 4, and 5 mm-hmm. there already and they don't have 3, but you know, whatever. I mean, 3 is all about this school and detention and being the demon lord. Have you played it? I played 3 chapters of it. 
probably back in like 2015, so I don't really remember a whole lot about it. But yeah, they're, okay. they're fun. Yeah. So I'm not super big on story-based chapter things. I think the game is actually its best when you do the item dungeons. So every item in the game is a dungeon, and they're like roguelike style dungeons. So you go in, and each floor is a random assortment of enemies, and it, like it's a random assortment of like how the the map is actually laid out. Well, we found out why he likes this game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does. It reminds me a lot of the mystery dungeon games, which originally introduced me to the roguelike genre. Mm. Okay, I get yeah. Yeah, so it's like you go in and it's this huge resource battle where you're trying to get as far into the dungeon as possible because every floor you beat in the dungeon makes the item that you're in level up and that makes the item stronger. So you have like a vested interest in making whatever fucking dungeon you're going through. You you have a vested interest in getting as far as you can through it. And you really you have to like manage your who you're using and like because they don't heal after every fight, so it's it's like a huge resource battle of like okay, I need to like use these characters for these particular fights and and like pushing through and it's just like you barely reach like the next because every ten floors you can leave and you won't lose like your progress in the dungeon. So it's like I gotta push through to the next item boss at the tenth floor interval so that I can get there. And every one of those fights is like you're just scraping by the fucking skin of your teeth and they're like so intense. I really, really like that aspect of it. I think I've spent like half of my game time just dicking around in the item dungeons because I find running them more fun than I do just like the main story in the game. Plus, that has the benefit of making my character's gear, like, really good. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I can see why people spend, like, like actually spend, like, hundreds of hours playing these games. 100%. <laughs> yep, definitely a, definitely a time sink. Yeah, there's a few other mechanics that also add to the time sinkiness of it, but it's a really interestingly crafted game. I've been having a lot of fun with it, so I really, uh, aka if you're listening to this, I really appreciate the, uh, the recommendation to try out this guy. I've been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, you gave him an RPG... Uh... An give RPG me a, that he actually liked. Give me a JRPG, really. He even said the grind word didn't immediately... The cringe or like hate cringe, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I said, I think the fact that it's got meaningful ways to affect the positioning of the enemies. Every mm-hmm. move actually has a fucking point. The characters aren't just like complete cringe lords. Well, they are, but they're like cringe lords in the kind of way that I can laugh at them instead of being like, oh my god, I hate this. Why am I playing this game? I am the hero, therefore I am... Destined for greatness. I think it helps that, like, Laharl and Etna are both, like, they're not goody-two-shoe characters. They're both, like, kind of evil. And Flan's the only, like, goody-two-shoe character. But, like, because it's a two-on-one dynamic, they're both like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, (laughs) that's a good point. She is an idiot. Fundamentally, her intentions are to make Laharl be, like, less shitty to people. And that's, like, kind of an admirable goal. And so she's, like, sticking around trying to, like, teach him to be less shitty towards people. Even if he is like the king of the like the Nether Realm or Nether World or whatever the hell it's called, yeah. So the fact that there's like a lot of mechanical things in it and story wise, I don't hate it either. And then like the dungeons are a huge standout for me because I'm like, oh my god, this is like roguelike stuff. But the reason that you do it isn't just because it's fun; it's also because it makes your shit better. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. Uh, sorry, because I was curious about the Disgaea three. So there's also a uh, Disgaea D two, which is the Essentially, it's the sequel of Disgaea 1. Oh. But that's also not on Steam. Oh. It's really, it's a confusing naming convention, but it's, yeah, it's essentially a continuation of the story from the first. I was actually going to recommend that one. That's unfortunate. You can't have that one. Well, I mean, it is what it is. You know, now I was thinking about it. If, I don't know if the character, if it's like Final Fantasy where the characters change every single time. 
And it, it is. the fact that you just said that makes me think that it is. So maybe it might actually be better to, instead of doing Disgaea 2, it might be better to pick up like Disgaea 5 since it's the most recent entry and probably has like the most quality of life changes and features. So there might be like a ton of stuff in that that I would immediately really like. Yeah, or ask AK. Yeah, I'll just I'll defer to the experts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that about wraps it for what I have been dicking around with over the last two weeks. What have you been up to? Well, I'm going to get this one out of the way because probably getting onto my worst game of the list. A suicide oh my... guy. Again? You had Twin Breaker a few weeks ago. What the fuck? What happened? <laughs> so this was like a indie sale pickup. Okay. And this is how all of your I hate this game story start yes, exactly <laughs> it was cheap and i'm 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 a cheap anyway took a risk and i shit my pants <laughs> yeah exactly so the core idea is kind of funny because in most video games your goal is to get to the end and survive okay in this the puzzles are oriented so that you must essentially kill yourself in the level in order to complete the level your whole goal is that you're stuck in a dream and your beer's about to fall and you acknowledge that your beer's about to fall in the dream world, but you need to kill yourself in all the levels in order to get out. Okay, can I interject for a second here? There's a Flash game with this exact same pros, well, almost this exact same premise that I played back in high school called uh, Salary, like Suicide Salary Man. It was a 50-level puzzle game where each level was about you trying to kill the salary man because he hates his job. And then, like, the, mm. the final level is just you walking him off the fucking top of the building, and he actually, like, that's the, finally kills himself. Oh. <laughs> oh, my. It's like a silly Flash game based mm-hmm. on, like, the terrible Japanese working conditions and working culture. Yeah, well, oddly enough, it actually starts you off with uh, jumping off the building. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, some of the puzzles are were kind of funny. Mm-hmm. One was, like, you had to get the radio, then you had to, like, repair in this home the basement like from the leaky pipes and then you filled up the tub and then you with the radio you took it into the bathtub and turned it on that's how you got out of that world. okay <laughs> jesus i mean yeah so is this i like mean it's a... not it's not very graphic it's it's very card yeah i was gonna say that's why this other game worked too is it like a third person explorey type game? No, and here's the problem game? with it. It is first person and oh. it is the only game that has ever given me motion sickness to the point where I had to stop multiple times, looked it up online and said, "Is there a motion sickness problem with this game?" And there was like about 3 or 4 forums that said yes. And I don't know if it's because of the context or if it's just how the game is like been poorly Welcome to my Maybe world. because it's in first person. Welcome to my fucking world. Every time I play a first person game that doesn't have a field of view slider. There's like a, a few settings that you can adjust on PC games usually that help with that. Field of view is one of them. Uh, this head... has no settings, so. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's like a PlayStation game, right? Yeah, even on the PC for Steam, it has like nothing. Wow, that's... I think they maybe added it in something later to deal with it, but they never added it for That's real dog PS4, shit. So. Yeah, I only got like through 13 levels and I was just like, I, I can't play this. Yeah, no, I, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like physically painful to play the games. I tried it three times to give it the benefit of the doubt. I shouldn't have. But each time I played like for like five minutes and I was just like, I can't. This is and I don't know if, if it was just that or if it was just also on top of the idea of like, oh, I have to kill myself in the game. Is that also contributing to my queasiness? Maybe. It's hard to say. Maybe it's yeah. you know, the general idea. 
is not helping and with the issues with it for being first person maybe the compounding I-, I liked the idea but the execution was horribly done and i mean it it, it more or less looks kind of like a unity game anyway <laughs> okay so man we're gonna have to do like a bottom five fucking podcast this year holy hell shit. yeah oh no <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, what else do you got well so i'm gonna try and pronounce this but i'm gonna butcher it Yuto Warumono? I don't know how to say this. Say it. It looks um, like it should be Yutomaru Wartu. Mono? No. Fucking what? <laughs> See? It's tough. Anyway. The Mask of Deception and the Mask of Truth. Mask of Truth. So this is a visual novel with some strategy-oriented RPG gameplay. In the sense that it's also a kind of grid-based. That's a move your very confusing that. mishmash works because it's usually like the battles are with the story and the context um it makes sense okay because you're in and i'll put spoilers for this there's you're basically in a version of feudal japan but mankind has pretty much ceased to exist because i won't spoil that part but some some bullshit and the world's basically populated with i guess you'd say demi-humans where they've all got like beast-like characters like tails and years but they're not like sexualized which is kind of not... <laughs> i was gonna say it's not a bunch of sexy cat girls running around i was gonna say yeah i have to specify that <laughs> so this is like a two-part game and there's actually a, a first game which kind of helps out with a few of the plot points but it's not required for this one okay this one's kind of more or less a standalone so the first game is kind of introducing most of the characters and it's more almost like slice of life oriented like going through like some of their daily routines like learning about these characters every kind of new part of the game after a battle is like getting into more of the characters learning a little bit more of their past in this visual novel there's like no choice is it's like really play the part read and listen to the, the japanese dub and that's really it um the characters are actually very really endearing though mm. like they are the the better part of the game there's a plot twist at the end of this one that leads into the second game, which is a whole lot better in terms of the story, and it further develops the characters even more. So, so you played the first I mean, game th- then, yeah? Well, sorry, of the, this part. Oh, okay. The, so the Mask of Deception is first, and then the Mask of Truth is the second. Oh, okay, one. I understand. I, I didn't. I, that, I misunderstood. Okay. Both of these games are, I'd say, 30 to 40 hours, so it's a long haul. So this is why it took me about, like, I'd say two to two and a half months to kind of chip away at this in the evening on the Vita. Yes, I did play it on the Vita. I am the weird guy. Whatever. You also can't get it now because it's delisted, so... Oh, jeez. You can get it on PC, though. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. The shit's on Steam? Yeah, the shit's on Steam. So I guess I'll talk more about the Oh my part. god, it costs $60 Canadian. There's like 12 of them. Uh, I'd have to check later on that. It's $45 for Mask of Deception and $45 for Mask of Truth. Oh, I didn't pay that. I paid like $25 for the... Cost $90 for both together. of them together. Anyway. Sorry, this is blowing my mind. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> Fucking holy shit. They're long, good games, so I think they're they're remaking some as, like, action-oriented instead. Some, like, sort of zen version. I can't comment on that one, but so I just played the strategy RPG one. Which, the first one kind of fumbles its way through because a lot of the enemies can be downed in, like, one or two hits. 
Okay. But you as well can be down by the enemies in one or two hits, so that kind of balances out. Okay, that's not. I was gonna say that's not a bad system. Yeah, it just means that the like the battles are really short, and there's not a whole lot of like strategicness in them. It's just kind of. So I posted something in the chat. I don't believe you that the there's not pornographic demi humans. Oh no, there definitely is. But fucking Steam page has nudity prominently featured as a tag. <laughs> it's not em- highly emphasized though. Anywho, the battling part. Big problem on the first one is the same that you've just described in Disgaea 1. Uh, healer does not get experience for using the heal moves in the first game. Yeah, that's just like the shittiest shit. In the second one, they resolve that. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, your reserve characters, because you'll get like, I think like 10 to 11 or so in the first one and a few more in addition to that cast in the second one. They do not get extra experience for like the battles, so if you are kind of needing to use them later on, they'll be really underleveled in the first game, meaning you'll have to grind to get them to the maybe proper level for the final boss. Not that you probably need it, but okay, it's kind of one issue, uh, whereas they resolve that in the second one where all the reserve get the experience as well. So it sounds so, like there's a lot of learning between the first and There's the a lot game. of learning between the first, yeah, the, that one. That's good. The second game also has it so that the enemies don't go down so easily, and neither do you. So, I mean, the battles are a bit longer, but they're also more strategic, which means that when you do get to a boss that is a heavy hitter, there is a lot more strategy involved. One mechanic that I really liked in the game was there was this rewind mechanic. So, let's say you fucked up move 13. You could rewind to that point and retry with a different strategy. So, you didn't have to restart the whole entire counter. Now, this rewind Mm. thing was only for 50 previous moves. So, if you're at, like, the 100th move, you can only move back 50. I feel like if something went terribly awry, you probably already know about it before getting that far ahead of it, you know? Well, for the most part, yeah. Sometimes the enemies would transform into something else, and you'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, no, my placement, that's terrible. Yeah, okay, I guess and in that they'd, regard, They'd yeah. do, like, an area of an attack that you weren't prepared for, so you could essentially re-prepare for it properly. Yeah. That mechanic was a lot more useful in the first one, especially when, like, there'd be, like, the one-two kill, and you'd be like, oops, that wasn't the right spot to put them. <laughs> Second game, not so much, because for the most part, you could get your healer in there the right opportune time and actually get experience thank god but she was like the most under level character in that game and i was like no you're the healer don't die in the end why is it always the healers that get fucking killed off because they have the least amount of hp that's just yeah video game 101 yeah i guess that's they're never true. a tank we need tanky healers so yeah there's a lot of as you said kind of learning between the games which i was like there's a lot of good quality of life improvements there's actually that's cool Kind of a tutorial system where General essentially teaches you some of the extra game mechanics that aren't 100% explained, like positioning, use certain moves that would speed up your next move or okay, do other stuff. So the game taught a lot more. There was also a scrimmage kind of move where it would pin like half your team versus the other half of your team and you wouldn't be able to just decide who was on your team. So that mode was kind of a lot of fun. You can use all that experience 
power up your units for the later chapters. Okay. So, and the enemies, so you, like your other allies on the opposite team, also gain experience for whacking your characters. Yeah, I mean they're too. all they're all your your team, right? So. Yeah, I know it's just kind of interesting that it's like, oh my, not just my like six characters on this side of the team are gaining experience; they're also gaining experience at the it's same like a, time. It's so. like a big kind of again shonen style like training montage, <laughs> where it's yeah. like the main characters like split off into two teams and start beating the shit out of each other to, to get better at battling. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, you don't see that too often in mm-hmm. many of these games. Do you ever get to do that in Fire Emblem? In Fire Emblem Awakening, there's a feature kind of like that, but it's not at all like that. Okay. So they had a street pass functionality in Awakening, which is the only one that I've really played. You could set up a team of people. So when you street passed, you'd get people's teams, which meant that you were basically getting like a bunch of Kaizo units from somebody. The thing that was really shitty is that like when you went into these fights against these Kaizo units from other players, if they killed any of your units, they were gone for good, which I thought was really stupid. Mm-hmm. I know that's that's like a a false kind of comparison because it's not, those two things are not even remotely the same thing, but that's like the closest thing I can think of to having seen any kind of other feature that was even like that. It's really neat that was in this game. Yeah, it was in the second one, so the second one is a lot better, but you really need to do play the first one for all the context. For the story, you mean? There is no uh, catch-up mechanic uh, in the second one to say like, oh, you skipped the first one? What the fuck's wrong with you? So it expects that you've played... Buy the first one. (laughs) Yeah, it expects you've played the Mask of... What the fuck was it? The Mask of Deception? Yeah. Yeah. I did look up the spelling of the name. Someone has it written out phonetically. Do you want me to try and say it? (laughs) Sure. Utah Ray... No. Utah Raw Ray Room (laughs) Ono. They put it in phonetically... So, in, in nothing but basic-ass English words, so like it says, yeah, Utah Ra Re Rumono. That's how you're supposed to say that. Except not probably with as many pauses as I had in there. I mean, I think they said that in the game, like, a few times, but yeah, they, not this, enough where I, I was I was familiar with it. The the robot just said it very quickly for me there, and uh, you'll probably hear it on my end of the fucking recording, but... I didn't, I didn't hear it, but that's fine. It said this shit that I just put in the chat much faster than I said it. But yeah, that sounds neat. I don't know. Do you think I would despise this game? Oh, probably. Okay. I was going to say, if it ever comes down on, in fucking price on PC, I mean, like, $90 is pretty fucking steep. That's the thing. It's a long visual novel. It's like 80% visual novel. Mm. Yeah, it's probably so, not my wheelhouse then. No, I don't think that would be your wheelhouse. And there's no meaningful way of changing the plot or anything like that. I feel like there's probably some people who listen to our podcast and they know exactly who they are who would probably enjoy this game, though. Oh, no, for sure. I, I recommend it. It's a, It was a good game. Cool. And the last one I've been really playing is uh, Ori and the Blind Forest. Fuck that game. I have to agree to a certain... Yes! Yosh! Like, I liked the start, but I'm also getting very frustrated with Everything. a lot of the level design. <laughs> yep. Because there's just so much that, like, it looks like it should be... In like... the fucking background or in the foreground, and you can't tell the mm-hmm. difference, right? Because they prioritize visual fucking fidelity over clarity in their level design that was my biggest fucking complaint and it's true in the second game too oh my god i'm not crazy someone agrees with me finally Uh, (laughs) (laughs) holy shit you have no idea how happy i am to hear you say that yeah i'm still gonna play through the whole like the rest of it but like i finished the up to the water level 
and I'm onto the I think I'm onto the wind part. Yeah, okay, I know I know approximately where you are then. So I think about a third halfway. You're halfway through the game. Okay, I'm halfway through the game. Yeah. yeah. There's like I guess spoilers for a 5-year-old game. There's like three kind of like main dungeony type areas you do. The tree is the first one, but you don't get to it until you're already over a third of the way through the game. And then by the time you're mm-hmm. done the bit that follows the tree and you go into like the snow wind area, then you're over the halfway point. Okay. I've died like 130 times, and I feel like a lot of them are cheap. I played the game on hard mode, so I died in one hit throughout the entire game. I think I died like 500 times throughout the game, and I agree with you that most of the deaths were just like me not understanding that something was or was not in the background or the foreground because the game does an absolutely terrible job of like communicating that visually. Yeah, I think that this game having like a one-life mode is bullshit. I agree. It's, it's Apparently it's not much better in, in the normal difficulty. I played through the normal difficulty it's and not. had like an easier time not dying when I made a mistake because I couldn't tell if something was or wasn't in the background. But like eventually the like you know you fucking do it a couple times in a row and then you're fucking dead anyway. So it's like, okay, cool. Thanks, game. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I've just died and I've been like, oh, okay. At least you can set your own checkpoints, which is a feature they got rid of in yes. the second game because... What? Yeah, they just put in auto-saving in the second game instead, so you don't have to set your own checkpoints, the game just does it for you. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, I thought the idea of setting your own checkpoints was neat, but the fucking game that accompanied it was not great. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I can tell, like, where, like, oh, that's what they're playing, but, like, sometimes it's just, like, oh, I'm going through this, like, portal in the tree, and then, like, how am I supposed to react that quickly? I just, I couldn't see where I was, like, especially for, like, all the double bouncing parts. I'm like, I, there's no way. I've stuck by that a lot. I think that Ori's a lot of, it, it is, it prioritizes his visuals too much. And there's like games that look really good that you can still clearly follow the things throughout the entire time. Like Celeste is a really challenging game, but you never lose track of Madeline, the main character, when you're playing that game because the way that they've, Madeline's prime, like her hair color is like, like a deep red. And most mm-hmm. of the level is blue. So it stands out like really, 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 really hard from the background. Hollow Knight's Mm -hmm. another great example. The main character, his body is dark, right? But he's got like a big, bright white head and everything in Hollow Nest is like blue or green or purple or black. And white stands out like a sore thumb from all of those things. So you'll never lose track of the Hollow Knight. Plus the game always keeps... The screen is always centered in both of those examples. The screen's always centered on the main character. That's not 100% true in Hollow Knight. When you're in boss fights, it's a fixed camera, but otherwise it almost always keeps the camera like locked on you in the center, so you always know, just look at the center of the screen and you're fine. It's super not true in Ori and the Blind Forest. The camera does not follow you 100% of the time because the game's trying to be artful and look pretty. Fucking <laughs> so stupid. If your fucking game can't clearly communicate visually to the player what's going on, then you have failed as a video game. I don't give a fuck how pretty you are. If I can't tell what the hell's going on, it doesn't matter how pretty your game is. I can't fucking play the game. I think my breaking point almost was when I was just getting out of the tree. Like, in, in spoilers, the water's, like, filling up the tree for some reason. I think everyone... Like, getting out of that was frustrating, like, as hell. Yeah, I think everyone already knows about that particular thing. But yeah, the, at least the water, and then it's, it's rubber banded. If you slow down, it will slow down to a point. And if as you speed up, it goes super duper fast. <laughs> 
Yeah, which I'm not a big fan of, like, at the beginning, because it's like, oh, I'm getting through this part, like, really, really quickly, especially when you're just, like, bouncing. Yeah. Quick succession, but then, like, the water's just, like, there with you, and I'm like, come on, I need a little extra time to figure this shit out. Yeah. So that kind of is a little bit frustrating. I Yeah, I do agree. I can, I could tell it was rubber banded as well. Yeah, it's very easy to tell when it fucking just, it's moving at, like, a million miles per hour, and then as soon as you had to, like, wait for the enemy to attack to use the uh oh that was frustrating in itself i one of the bounces is like you get one shot and that's it yeah which is really frustrating because it's like i how would i do this on a first try no (laughs) i also think that the way that so like ori 2 has this as a big one up on ori the original how did you find like the first several like because you're like halfway through the game how did you find the first half of the game just like mechanically i mean it keeps introducing a few new mechanics here and there so that helps a lot see i found it really boring until you get i can't remember the name of the skill what is this name of the skill that you get in the tree that lets you rebound off of objects oh i I know what you mean but hold on i gotta look up the name of it so i can actually use it bash it's called bash the game sucks dick until you unlock bash all the abilities you get at the beginning of the game are super duper boring and then you get bash and you're like oh the game's allowed to be fun now but you get it at like the midpoint in the game so then like after that ori becomes really really interesting but before that point holy shit ori is just a slog it's so pedestrian it is so unexceptional Ori 2 does a much better job of that. It front loads like the majority of its abilities, so you get to do it like you get bashed within like the first 30 minutes, I think, of playing Ori 2. The defining, really interesting platforming skill of that game immediately. And then it just layers extra, even like more interesting things on top of that. Although I didn't play Ori 2 super long because I got frustrated at the controls hurting my hand. <laughs> mm. And you know the fucking art style just being uh, style and no function. Funny because it's like overwhelmingly positive. I picked this up because uh, it was a Microsoft weekend, or maybe it still is. Uh, that was and that was, was like, last week. Yeah, I know what you're talking about on yeah, Steam, right? On Steam, and I was like, I don't have an Xbox. I should pick up a few games, and one of those was. I mean, what that one was an extra on sale, but I was like, eh, five bucks. That's nothing. Oh, it was on sale. I fucking oh, forgot to tell you that. Whatever. It's fine. Five bucks is five bucks. Yeah, I was going to say, well, side tangent for anyone who doesn't know. So the game's normally like $22 Canadian, and for some reason, Microsoft didn't, or like Steam or somebody fucked up and didn't apply the sale to it. They just lowered its price. Oh, that's why I picked that up for that. Yeah, so instead of being $20 oh. and then being like 75% off and costing $5, it was just $5. And I was like, that's interesting. Oh, that's what I did, actually. Yeah, so you did get it on sale. It's just that they, they screwed okay. it up somehow. I don't know how they managed that. Because if you look at it n- I... now, it's back up to being like 20 bucks. Oh, hell yeah. I got it for sale. I didn't even realize. <laughs> oh, no. It's still only $7. What the fuck? It's she- what the hell? I can't explain that. I thought that was like a screwed up sale, but it's still $7. Maybe that's just a... Maybe they still screwed up. Maybe they don't know the... That's so weird. <laughs> I okay, whatever. That's seven dollars Canadian. It's probably like five bucks American. But yeah, continue. Oh, <laughs> uh, not not much to, else to say really. I'm still gonna chip away through it slowly. This is the first game that I did use the essentially the, the Steam controller version for the PS4, like to do the mapping. Oh yeah, you probably would have to do that for it. Yeah, it worked really well. That's all I really have to say on that. Yeah, I, I bet it did. <laughs> not that's no no shade like it just it, that's what it's designed to do <laughs> right yeah this is very interesting to me that you had a very similar experience to me where i'm like i can't tell what's going on and i really didn't like it and i'm 
over like I'm overwhelmingly in the minority with not liking the game because a lot of people are like, oh man, it's like so beautiful. And it's such a beautiful story, and I'm like, I thought the story was fucking. Okay. Not even think it was okay. I thought it was bad. Do you mind if I spoil the story for you, or do you want to finish it and then I can spoil I'm the next podcast? It. Okay, you I'll can spoil it next time. I should have time to finish. I guess it was, yeah, I'll, it'll be a spoiler for next podcast. I'm gonna be talking about well, <laughs> next week. We'll be talking or not next week. Next episode, we're gonna talk about Ori, and I'm gonna explain why I didn't like the ending, provided I remember. Or Jason will just talk about the fucking story, and then I'll remember based on that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I'm very happy that You're relieved. Yeah, I was like, I was very, I like, I'm very happy that you have the same minority opinion on this fucking game that I do. <laughs> I've joined you, comrade. <laughs> ah, yes, comrade. Anyway, that is our show for this week. I don't have any more games to talk about. So you can follow us on the Frosty Canucks on Twitter. You can follow this podcast on any of the platforms it's available on, such as Anchor, Spotify, or Stitcher. Uh, you can follow myself at Javam Animation. That's J A V M Animation on Twitter. I post some art stuff. I post some games I've been playing. Uh, currently, I'm just trying to figure out my art style. I've been practicing a lot um, without posting, so hopefully I will figure that out at some point and start maybe posting some more art and your stuff. You can follow me at FrostyLate on Twitter. That is the one-stop shop for everything. If you want to read articles, and you should, I uh, as previously mentioned, I wrote about my time with Firewatch and how the uh, design of that game's uh, narrative systems are really interesting. And I have a review for Luigi's Mansion 3 going up on the blog before this podcast goes live, so you should go read both of those things over on my blog, frostylight.ca. If you want to see art stuff, but none of the other garbage that I post on Twitter, you can just follow me on Instagram. Only the completed pieces go there, so it's like a good old collection of just the finished art. And on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, I am usually found over at twitch.tv slash frostylight. Streaming stuff, it's a real haven of degeneracy, but it's always a good time, and there's always some good chatting going on there, so... Last stream was all about chins and tits. Yes, it was. That makes sense in context. That is all I'm going to say. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us, and stay frosty.